The gospel lesson is taken from John's gospel, chapter 21, and I will be reading verses 1 through 19. This is God's word. After Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples whom, disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. The word of the Lord. I took note that of uh, three people who passed away this week that have been in the headlines. And I like them, but in different ways. The first I thought was a comic genius. The second represents a lost America that will 
never be found again without a political revolution. The third I admired and thought the most courageous and principled of persons. They are in order, Jonathan Winters, Annette Funicello, and the third, Baroness Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher, Prime Minister of the UK from 1979 to 1990. Our world, I think, was much better off because of these three people. Two of these entertained us, and they were an anodyne to our pain and suffering in life. Margaret Thatcher, I think, saved her country from financial and political ruin and was an inspiration for all who love liberty. In all three cases, however, whatever impact these persons had in life on earth, in the scheme of things, it is but a drop in the bucket. That's not the case with the subject of my sermon today. These people had an immediate impact, but they will soon be forgotten. But not Jesus of Nazareth. Through him, through his death and through his resurrection and his ascension on high, which I will preach on in a few weeks. He has indeed changed the world, changed everything, made all the difference. His presence in our history has made all the difference. And today I want to demonstrate why in this post-resurrection appearance where Jesus meets up with his disciples again the third time, but in particular, his conversation with Peter, the son of John, the leader of the 12 original apostles. The text, of course, by now you may have suspected, is part of the gospel lesson, John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. The location is on the shores of the Galilean lake. It's called the Tiberias Sea. And they are now having fish for breakfast after a night of fishing. They have met with Jesus. And Jesus brings up to Peter some unfinished business between them. That's about the only way I can put it. It's, it's unfinished. Jesus is finishing up everything before he ascends to his father. I do not know whether Peter was taken aback by this encounter or not. I'm inclined to think that he was. And for this reason, when he saw the Lord from the boat in the sea, about a hundred yards from the shore, the impetuous and highly emotional Peter jumps out of the boat after he had put his clothing back on and swims to the shore to greet Jesus. 
He got ahead of the boat. He couldn't wait. And there he saw Jesus. Now, Peter is pictured in the Gospels as an impetuous man, an emotional man. And what took place at this time is something which he no doubt remembered the rest of his life. But at this point of great joy and excitement to see Jesus, no doubt he had already suppressed what had happened in the past. And maybe he didn't anticipate much in the future. There are those who live in the moment, so to speak. They have such an engagement with the present that they tend to forget the past and to ignore the future. Now, that really is uh, a plus and a minus for a person to live that way. It's a plus in the sense that you're always engaged. But of course, there is a past and there is a future. I don't know whether Jesus drew him aside or not, and I don't know how much the other disciples really were able to hear this conversation. Maybe they could hear it in the background. Uh, There were now eight on the shore, including Jesus. And maybe he drew Peter aside just for a moment, and he engaged him in conversation. And what he engaged him about was some painful memories when evoked for Peter. And really the backdrop to this entire section of Scripture is John chapter 13. And maybe you would like to look at it. In John chapter 13, it is the immediate context and background for this particular occasion. And it's when Jesus predicts Peter's denial. But I want you to hear the language. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Jesus, of course, is speaking about his death. And in so doing, he calls it a glorification. It is, in a real sense, a glorification because it is the vindication of God in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. And then he goes on to say, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, I tell you now where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Now, I want you to notice the command for love. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And here is the impetuous Simon piping up. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. I want you to mark that. I will lay down my life for you. There's no place you can go that I wouldn't go. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. 
Now that is the context in which to understand this encounter. Let me say what is significant in this text and what is not. I have heard whole sermons built around what is insignificant in this text. I'm going to tell you three things that are not significant. And I'm pretty confident that they are not that significant for a lot of reasons. And a close reading of the text and the Gospel of John indicates such. What is not interesting or significant, if you will, is the change in the word for love. Love appears three times, but in Greek there are two different words. Agapos appears here twice, and fellow, fellow, or phileo, appears once at least twice. Now, all through the Gospel of John, you see these being interchanged. I think C.S. Lewis, that I'll mention later, has done a lot in teasing out these words for love, and it sticks in people's minds, and they think that they always hold these distinctions. But here they're just synonyms. The words for shepherding, feed and tend, again, just shows variation. And the words for flock, lambs and sheep, really are not significant. What you have here are synonyms being used, and John does it throughout the entire text. He, he likes variety, he likes to change words. Rather than just simply saying, stand up, on one occasion, he may say, get up, on another, but it means the same thing. And so, the so-called subtleties of the Greek text here are made too much of because they have to do with simply using variety and synonyms. It's just a difference in style. It is what John liked to do and the way that he liked to write. But what is important here? Let me tell you three things, at least, that are important in this text. It is important that you understand that behind this text is Jesus as the Good Shepherd. This has already been discussed in John chapter 10. What is behind this text as well is that Jesus knows his sheep. Moreover, what is important in this text is that in and through the gospel... And this is the main point in a real sense for Peter. In and through the gospel, there is an overflowing love and forgiveness offered even to the most offending sinner. In and through the gospel, there is offered a generosity of love and power that gives life and hope to you and to me as well as it did to Peter. And it transcends all time it transcends all failures, and it transcends all disappointments and all suffering. Jesus is the Good Shepherd. Throughout the Gospel of John, he is declared to be the Good Shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd that is good, in contrast particularly to the shepherds of the Old Testament that failed miserably that were bad. So when Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, it is in the backdrop of all the failure of the leaders of Israel, including the great King David. The shepherds of the Old Testament are condemned over and over for being unfaithful. Now we all have shepherds, our eldership here, 
represents the shepherding ministry of the church. Shepherds we have in our public life. We have shepherds in the political arena. And almost always we experience our political leaders, at least after they've been in Washington for any amount of time, as leaders who grasp for power and dominion over others, who lavish on themselves uh, all that they can and live lascivious lives. Against this stands one who only is a good shepherd, whether we're talking about the Old Testament or we're talking about leaders today who gain power. For the most part, they are failures. But in no case are they the kind of shepherd for our souls and our lives that Jesus is. Jesus said in chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That is what Jesus does for us, and that is what he did for us. And as Peter encounters him there, this is the good shepherd who laid his life down for him. You see, a good shepherd never cuts and runs. Always be faithful to their post. They will protect the sheep against the wolves. And so Jesus is that good shepherd who never cuts and runs, but is faithful to the end and one who lays down his life for the sheep and one who protects his sheep from the wolves. This is a marvelous and wonderful text. And Peter is experiencing firsthand, if you will, the ministration of the good shepherd of Jesus Christ. Let me go on. Jesus, as a good shepherd, knows his sheep and supplies their needs. Simon, son of Jonah, is mentioned three times in this text. Now, this is significant. I mean, John. Simon, son of John, is mentioned three times in the text. That is significant. The first time that Jesus encountered Peter, at least in an official capacity, is found in John chapter 1, verse 42. And when one turns to that particular passage, you find this. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and they followed Jesus. John pointed out Jesus as being the good shepherd, the Lamb of God as well. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. Then he brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at Peter and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Jesus knows his sheep by name, and I believe that he reiterates the very name that he encountered Peter with on the first occasion. Jesus knows the name of his sheep, and he can name them one by one. Now, what does this mean? Here, I think we are getting to the heart of this text. Not only is Jesus is the good shepherd, but he knows the name of Peter and he reminds him. And then the text goes on to say that he knows what is in the heart of each one. 
But the question is, does Jesus know your name? Does he know you? Are you just a mere number, a faceless member of the herd in society? And while society and its leaders may never take notice of you, the question is, are you known by God through Jesus Christ? Are you just a statistic, a rube who lives in flyover country? That's the way we are treated often, isn't it? You see, we're not in the power center. Power is actually shifting even from the great city of New York for the South. That's where all the power is. And that's what happens in the world. There's a concentration of power everywhere, every society. And you become a nothing. Not really known. You're a number. There are people actually working you out in numbers. You, you are represented, but by a number. Trying to figure out how old you are, how sick you are, um, how much taxes you pay. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Coming up. All of those things. But the question is, not does the politician in Washington know who you are. They don't. Does God know who you are? I want to direct your attention to what Jesus is doing with Peter. To Isaiah chapter 49, verses 15 and 16. And I want you to hear carefully how God describes Israel. And now Jesus is applying this to Peter but he applies it to you and to me. In that famous passage, a rhetorical question is raised and God is speaking. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Yes, she could forget. Listen, though she may forget, God says, I will not forget you. And then he goes on to say, see, I have engraved you, your name, on the palm of my hand. It is significant that Jesus reminds Peter who he is. He knows his name and he knows what is in his heart. And by implication, my friend, the great shepherd of the sheep knows you and knows what is in your heart and what your struggles are. I tell you, that is a great comfort. That is a great comfort to all of us. I mentioned Jonathan Winters. I don't know whether you know much about his life or not. I don't know anything about his, his religious faith or belief or tendencies. But I have followed him. I, I, I think he is hilariously funny. Uh, I, I have some of his characters indelibly imprinted on my mind. Maud Frickett, for instance, the cranky old granny. Is, is that dating me or you just don't watch television? How about Elwood P. Suggins? <laughs> He's the one who always said, I suck eggs 24 hours a day. Now, Jonathan Winters, probably many of you don't know. But he was extraordinary in his routines. He was depressed 
much of his life. He had many nervous breakdowns. He was bipolar. And I can remember him being interviewed on Johnny Carson. That's another name from the past. That's why I have to get out of Dodge. <laughs> Nobody knows what I'm talking about. The point is, he was saying to Johnny Carson, I felt alone most of my life and peculiar. I felt alone and peculiar most of my life. And he talked about his breakdowns there on the program. And my heart was sinking for him as I heard this man full of pain. Full of pain. You can get to the place where you may not think anyone is for you. But I read those verses from the scriptures to assure you that God knows his sheep. I am the great shepherd of the sheep and I know my sheep. And they come unto me, they follow me. And no one, no one shall take them out of my hand for I and the Father are one. Whatever you may understand about Christianity, understand at least the heart of the gospel that God is for you in Jesus Christ. He gave his life for you. He was raised on the third day for you and he has ascended into heaven from whence he shall come for you. No matter whether you feel it or not, he knows his sheep. My perseverance does not depend upon me. It depends upon the God who has begun a good work in me and who never leaves me or forsakes me. Jonathan Edwards felt alienated most of his life. I hope he understood that there was one who came to cut down that distance between me and my maker, to bring me into the Father's house. Praise be to God that he knows my name and he knows your name. He knows every sorrow, every pain, every joy of your heart. But also one more thing here, that in and through this person of Jesus Christ is the gospel. What Peter is to experience here is something that happens only once in a while. Only once in a while. I, hear, I remember hearing one of the great revivalists say one time that a refreshment from the Lord in my life has been a very rare thing, and when it comes, I cherish it. And here Peter is going to encounter the incarnation of the grace and love of God, of the grace and love and truth of God. And he experiences a restoration through God's love. He's restored. Three times Jesus goes over this, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? For he had denied him three times. And then he puts him back in the position that he held among his disciples and apostles. Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. If you will, hold my lambs. Love them as I have loved you. C.S. Lewis has a new biographer and probably the best. It's Alistair McGrath. And I'm reading this biography. 
And I have been reading it when I should have been doing other things. It's a good one. C.S. Lewis was not necessarily a good man. And this biographer does not paint over his problems. He's been sanitized through his literature to us. But he was not a good man. He rebelled. His mother died at 10 years of age. It marked him. He lost his faith for years. And only gradually and slowly did he come back. He first of all began, well, maybe I can at least believe in God. And then about a year later, he says, you know, I think Christianity is probably the true myth. Myth here meaning not something that's a fairy tale, but it gets at deep meaning. It's the way scholars use the word myth. And just a short while later, as he was driving, being driven to the zoo, he said, I started out for the zoo, and when I got there, I believed in the divinity of Jesus Christ. God had brought him back and restored him to his baptismal promise. Even though his mother was not around and he was, for the most part, alienated from his father. And when he writes about his conversion, he calls it in that little book, Surprised by Joy. I think Peter was absolutely surprised by joy after this encounter that God had not brought up his sins in Jesus Christ to reject him or to judge him, but to restore him. This is God's overflowing love. He's restored and even given responsibility to care for the sheep. Peter, as I have loved you and cared for you, now you care for these and these little ones. How important it is we as Christians understand that we all have a shepherding a shepherding capacity in the body of Christ. Friday evening and most of yesterday, I was at a meeting in another church. And uh, this is one of the smaller churches in Orange County. Uh, they had uh, uh, only about a Sunday school size class, about what we have in adult Sunday school in um, the church. But they had a big time name there to speak. And I was invited to come and meet him. Robert Norris, who pastors Fourth Presbyterian Church, a church of 3,000 in the D.C. area in Maryland. And I was blessed by the ministry. Not so much what was said. I, 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 I concur and agree. He's from my circles. I expected to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what I was impressed with is the fact that he gave a weekend to 17 people. He said, well, pastor, every shepherd of the sheep ought to do that. That's true, but they don't. They don't. Shepherds who are professional can fall in the same kind of Category or develop the same syndrome as they do in Washington. He came and ministered to the sheep the grace of God. 
Now, this is a man that understands who he is. He understands who he is and what he has received. And what you have received, you now are responsible to give to others. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. A little long in the sermon, but uh, John Stott, the famous John Stott, once talked about why he didn't preach sermonettes. He said, for they are for Christianettes. A little long, but understand this is an important topic, not just for me, for you, to understand who you are. Let me close with this illustration. Margaret Thatcher. I had two experiences this week. First of all, I had the experience I tried to witness to a young man. And before I could get any headway in the conversation, he said, that's not, that, that's not my thing. That's not my thing. Now think what that means. God's not my thing. Jesus is not my thing. How puny a God does he envision? One that you can put on like a jacket and take it off? Well, I just don't like blue. I don't like corduroy. But this is still a God who's seeking, searching love is for that young man. But Margaret Thatcher, I believe that we had a leader there who was a person of evangelical and true faith. She grew up as a Methodist. She planned her own funeral. And she went back into her Methodist background, though she had to join the Church of England when she was prime minister. She went back into her Methodist background and she has brought together, before she died, many of the things she loves as the children, the hymns, the psalms. And she speaks of her faith in Jesus Christ and that of her father's. An encounter with Jesus Christ will make you fearless in life and in death. You say, well, Pastor, I'm a very fearful person. Well, it'll make you less fearful to encounter him who is the living and the true God. And Jesus offers himself to you and to me, to that young man and to Margaret Thatcher. And he tells us that he died for us and was raised for us and on the third day. And it makes all the difference. We'll forget Margaret Thatcher. You, you may not even get to read her about her in history books. But this world will never forget the name of Jesus. He made all the difference to Peter. He has made all the difference to you. He makes all the difference to the world. Praise be to God. Amen.